God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And secondly, Luke chapter 4, 14 through 22. Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Thank you very much, Ashley. Good morning. My name is Daisy Richardson. I'm part of the team here at Hillcrest. I get to connect with the community usually, and I love doing that. And this morning, we are going to continue our journey through the story and just want to mention a couple of things as we get started. If you have not already had the chance to pick up your family's free copy of the story, I notice there's still a few left at the table by the information desk out there and we're giving those away one free copy per family and it's a great way to journey through the big story of the Bible without the little chapter breaks and little verse breaks and it kind of helps condense it into a very readable um, way to read through the big story of scripture and that's what we've been following along together we'd also like to invite you if you haven't already noticed there's a bookmark in the bench in front of you and it looks like this and this is a great tool that you can use not just when you're reading the story but when you're doing any bible reading and it's got three questions on the back that'll help us understand it live it and share it so this these are things you could ask yourself as you're reading through scripture and take some time to reflect so please take one of those stick that in your bible and and you can use that as well Well, we're on our fourth week of the story, and Pastor Steve has been bringing us through it so far. And as you can see, the posters on the side keep growing. Those are going to grow quite a bit by the end, and they help remind us where we've been. So a quick recap, if you haven't been here or maybe you haven't had a chance to follow along on the podcast, um, you could do that through our website. I would encourage you to do that. We started off with creation and asked the question with Adam and Eve, was it going to be God's way or my way? 
we moved on to the story of God building a nation with Abraham. And this one is so pivotal. You don't want to miss Abraham because in that story, God gives a promise to Abraham that he is going to make of him a great nation. And through him, all nations are going to be blessed. And last week, we looked at Joseph, which I love the story of Joseph. That's one of my favorite ones, actually. And I have to admit, I had a problem with the poster. I kept looking at it, and I thought, why is there Joseph in chains and the number one? It's all I could see. And I looked, and it took me the whole service to figure out it's actually the prison door swinging open. So if you're stuck on that number one, it's the prison door. So we talked about Joseph and how God in all things works together for the good of those who love him, and how God used Joseph to bring his family to Egypt to save them from starvation and actually to preserve um, what will later become the line of Christ, um, the lineage. It was a very cool story. I don't know if you caught it at the end, but this really leaped out at me this time. At the very end of Joseph's story in Genesis 50, I was struck by the faith that he showed at the end of his life. So Joseph is dying, and he speaks prophetically, recalling the promise of Abraham. And it says this, Soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. They were enjoying the land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and he said, When God comes to help you and lead you back, you must take my bones with you. It was amazing. He didn't know, unless the Lord had showed him, what was going to happen to his family, to his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. But that's actually where we're going to pick up the story today. So Joseph has died. His family has stayed in Egypt in this great land of Goshen that they were given when Joseph was the number one next to Potiphar, next to Pharaoh, sorry, in the land. But a long time passes, so long passes that now Joseph has already been forgotten. We were talking about this in our life group this week. How long would it take you to forget a great leader? Well, maybe it's harder today because we have, you know, Everything's online and social media. And, you know, we study history in schools. But how long? Like, really? Do we really remember people for 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years? It's not a surprise Joseph had been forgotten. 430 years later, we're going to pick up the story. Because something had changed dramatically. Israel, the people of Israel, the Hebrews or the Israelites, I'll use those interchangeably, They had hunkered down in Egypt, and they had just multiplied. They were doing great. In fact, they had gone to Egypt with, the the scripture tells us about 70 70 or 72, something like that, of Jacob's children, his sons, and grandchildren, plus their wives. And you know, some of them probably had more than one. So there's a few more to add in there. So I don't know, what what was it, 100 people, maybe 150 people moved to go meet Joseph in Egypt and began, well, that's not a great nation. That's just a big family. God had promised to make Abraham a great nation, and that takes time, 100, 200, 300, 400 years. Suddenly, Israel was a great nation. They were a big nation. They were bursting at the seams. In fact, we're told um, in this 
season that there are, we're told the number, I know, they just count the men and then they say plus women and children, which really makes the estimating hard. 600,000 men plus women and children. Well, at a very conservative estimate of one wife each and two children each, which is probably very conservative, that's 1.8 million people already at this time. So we're talking 2 million people are living in the land of Egypt who are not Egyptian. 430 years pass. And Egypt starts to feel threatened. They're like, okay, these people, they're not us. And they're doing really well. And what happens if they decide they don't like us? They could rise up and they could, they could actually defeat us. They're a real threat. And new leadership is in, in charge with a new pharaoh who cares nothing about Joseph or his legacy. And they enslave the Israelites. I wonder how that happened if they actually were so powerful at the time. How did that even happen? I don't know. We're not told. But they have become enslaved. And this is where we're going to pick up our story with the birth of Moses. And if you went to Sunday school as a child, you probably remember something about a story about a little baby in a basket. We're going to talk a little bit more about that story today. So here they are. They're slaves in Egypt. But God's plan for deliverance is still on schedule 430 years later. Moses is born during the rule of this terrible pharaoh who's decided not only am I going to enslave these people, but they could still rise up as slaves and take over. So we need to kind of curb their growth. And when baby boys are born, we're just going to get those midwives to quietly dispose of them. And we're, gonna, uh, we're going to uh, curb the population growth. Well, the, the Hebrew midwives, they were very God-fearing women and they didn't do it. And so pharaoh had to take more drastic measures in his infanticide program. In the midst of this, a baby was born, a baby boy who was named Moses. And he was delivered from danger when his mother hid him in a basket on the river. He was delivered by Pharaoh's daughter herself who came and discovered her, oh, a cute baby, I'm gonna keep him. And in God's sovereignty, here was a little girl, his sister, who came and brought his very mother to her to nurse him and wean him and raise him. So here's Moses, born to a slave, raised by his actual slave mother until he's old enough to go and live in the palace with his princess mother. Well, Moses knew he was born to a slave, and he knew that he was Hebrew, even though he was raised as a prince. And one day he witnesses something that makes him feel very sympathetic to the plight of his own people. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he goes and he kills that Egyptian thinking no one sees him but someone did and suddenly somebody knows and Moses flees for his life escaping from Pharaoh and he finds himself in the wilderness with a friendly shepherd with beautiful daughters who gives him a wife and he starts to tend sheep in the wilderness near Midian he's about 40 when he starts that Lots of years pass. Lots of years pass. He's just a shepherd. He's living a completely different life than anything he's ever known. When suddenly out in the wilderness one day he encounters the very living God, the God of creation, in a crazy way. A bush is burning and it doesn't burn up. And he goes to check it out and hears a voice from the bush who knows his name and speaks to him. And this is what happens. 
God says, and Ashley read it for us, he says, I want you to go. You're going to bring my people out of Egypt. I want you to come and lead them. And Moses' reply is probably what most of us would say, I don't think I can do it. Why me? Why me? Now, our logical selves say, well, Moses, look what he's done to get you ready for this. You're perfectly prepared. You're a Hebrew from birth. You can relate to the people that you're going to lead. You have knowledge of the insider Egyptian palace and how it works and how the government is, and you know the right language to use. And look, you have survivors, survival skills. You've been living in the wilderness for 40 years. Spoiler alert, you're going to come back. But God doesn't actually look at any of those things. God does not take this moment to give Moses a pep talk and tell him, you can do this. Just try hard. I've got you ready. That's not at all what he says. In Exodus 3, in verse 11, Moses protests, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God's response, just a few verses later, verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God doesn't talk about Moses and his training and his experience or his ability. He just introduces himself. And he says, it doesn't matter about you. It matters about me. This is actually all about me, Moses. And that's fascinating. It's the first time that God actually gives his self-assigned name, I am. It's not a title like we've been using for him, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's like a title. That's kind of lets you know who he is in relation to someone else. This is his actual personal name, I am. I am and I cause to be. The people at the Bible Project have done a great job of explaining, actually, the implications of I am. So we're going to watch a little clip right now. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the second key word here. Lord, written in all capital letters, this is the personal name of Israel's God. We first learn the meaning of this name in the story of Moses and the burning bush in the book of Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses and he commissions him to liberate the Israelites from slavery. And so Moses wonders, what if people ask the name of the God who has sent me? And so God responds, tell them, Ehyeh has sent me to you. Now, that Hebrew word Ehyeh means I will be. In other words, God's name means that he is the one who is and who will be. God's existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. This God simply is. But it will sound kind of strange for Moses to go say to the Israelites, I will be has sent me to you. Only God can say, I will be. So in the next sentence, God tells Moses the version he should say aloud, Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, he has sent me to you. 
Now, that word Yahweh is the ancient Hebrew form of the verb he will be. And this is the personal name of the God of Israel. It appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Now, here's what's interesting. Over the centuries, Israelites wanted to honor the sacred nature of this divine name. So as they read the Hebrew Bible aloud and they came to this name, they stopped saying Yahweh and instead started saying the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. Now this practice has been continued throughout the centuries. And so later, when people started translating the Bible into English, they adopted the same practice. Instead of spelling out the divine name, they translated it as Lord, spelled in all capital letters. Okay, you got that? Good, because there's more. Ancient Jewish scribes wanted to prevent anyone from even accidentally saying this name aloud when you read the Hebrew Bible. And so they came up with a visual device to remind you to make sure you say Adonai. They took the four consonant letters of the divine name. These letters correspond to our English letters, Y-H-W-H. Then they inserted the three vowels from the word Adonai and combined these together to create an artificial hybrid word, which if you pronounced it, it would say Yahuwah, but no Israelite ever said Yahuwah. It's simply a visual reminder to say the word Adonai. Now it gets more interesting. Much later, Christian scribes came along who didn't know that Yahuwah was an artificial word. And so they began to say it aloud and spell it in their writings. This is the word that eventually entered into English as Jehovah, it's a word many people still use today. But the main thing is the word Lord in all capital letters is an indication of the divine name. Don't confuse it with the word Lord in your English translations that's not in all capital letters. That is the actual Hebrew word Adon, which just means Lord or Master. This word can refer to people like kings or the master of a servant, even a shepherd over his sheep. And sometimes biblical authors will use this word to refer to God, like in the phrases, the Lord of all the earth or the Lord of Lords. But behind all of these words, Yehovah, Lord, Adonai, stands the original divine name of the God of Israel. It refers to the one who was, who is, and who forever will be. And that's who spoke to Moses out of the bush. He's the only one who is unchanging. He was essentially saying to Moses, you're about to lead a nation through some radical change. Here's what you need to know. I don't change. We live in the midst of the changing world, don't we? Changing po political climate, your kids are changing, your spouse is changing, your, our bodies are all changing, good or bad, whatever. Technology is changing. Oh my goodness, every time an update pops up on my phone, I'm like, no, don't update. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to not think about it. I don't want to open it tomorrow and everything be slightly different in a different place and look different. I just want it to stay the same so I can find my stuff. It's even worse on the computer. We're in a changing world. God is saying, I don't change. That's what you need to know. Max Lucado says it well. He says, you need an unchanging God in a changing world. And that's what God was telling Moses. And God repeats his promise made to Abraham. I'm going to make my people great. And all nations are going to be blessed through this people. So God sends Moses and he very graciously gives him his brother Aaron as his spokesperson, spoke mouthpiece, because Moses is nervous about this. Well, God predicted it, and it happened, just as he said, when Moses goes and speaks with Pharaoh, 
those demands are not met very favorably, and Pharaoh's stubborn heart refuses to let these people go. So God sends a series of plagues, and the cycle of challenge begins. This is what it looks like. A plague strikes. Pharaoh says, okay, okay, you can go. The plague stops, and Pharaoh changes his mind. And then it goes again, and it goes again. And we don't have time to get into all the plagues today, although this is what little boys live for in Sunday school, because the plagues are pretty exciting and uh, gruesome as well. You can read them yourself. But there's 10 of them, and they start. Water turns to blood. Frogs infest everywhere. Lice and gnats cover the land. Flies come in swarms. Livestock dies. Boils show up on people and animals. Hail destroys most of the crops, and what isn't destroyed by the hail is eaten by the locusts. Darkness covers each maybe in 10 days, two weeks, somewhere in there. One thing after another, after another, Pharaoh says, no, God says, okay, here's what's going to happen. And it does. And in the midst of this, I haven't always caught this part, but in the midst of this, God visibly demonstrates to Pharaoh how he has already set apart the Hebrew people right from the fifth plague on, so the plague of the death of the livestock, he tells Pharaoh, and this time, you're going to notice a difference because all your animals, your livestock's going to die, but over there in the land of Goshen where the Hebrews are, not a single animal is going to drop dead. Just watch and see. They don't get the boils. They don't get the hail. They don't get the locust. It's dark in all of Egypt. Not right there. No darkness falls on Goshen. He's already saying, I've set them apart. And look, they're going to be a different, they're going to be a different people. And he displays his power. Can you just imagine the death and destruction? The stench. I can't stop thinking about what the stench would be like. Water that's blood, piles of frog carcasses, piles of livestock carcasses. The whole place is destroyed. The devastation, utterly decimated. But... God is still not done. In a final plague, God weakens the Egyptians into releasing his people, but he also reveals his redemption plan. And we can't miss this. In the story of the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt, don't miss the 10th plague because it speaks volumes, and we're going to look back at it many times after this. Language throughout scripture after this will refer back to this event. And if you miss it, it gets confusing later on. So here it is. God says, okay, you've said no nine times. Here comes the big one. I'm going to kill the firstborn of every household in the land. And he gives special instructions to the Israelites. He says, this is what I'm going to do, but it won't happen to you if... You need to take a perfect lamb for a sacrifice, one for each household. There were very specific instructions. It needs to be one-year-old. It needs to not have defects. You're going to prepare the meat. You're going to eat it in a special way. You're going to eat it with urgency, with your robe wrapped up and your staff in your hand like you're ready to run out the door. You're not going to put yeast in your bread because there's not going to be time for it to rise. This is what you're going to do. He gives them all these instructions. And he says, and the other thing you're going to do is when you sacrifice that lamb, you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to paint it over your doorposts as a sign. And in Exodus 12, he tells them this. Exodus 12, verse, verse 12 and 13. On that same night, 
I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. There it is, capital L-O-R-D. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. I will pass over you. And in the instructions as he gives them, he says, and you're going to start celebrating this every single year. He totally gives them a new calendar. He's like, this is going to be the first month of your year from now on, and you're going to remember this. Because I'm going to display my power in an amazing way and deliver you, and you need to look back and remember how it happened. So this is what you do. So they do. The Israelites prepare, they get their lamb, they paint it. I, I, didn't th- I hadn't thought about this until just last night. I was thinking, I had sort of assumed they were still living in tents because they were shepherds and they were tent dwellers, but it says doorposts of your house, so they must have become more Egyptian in 400 years and actually had some houses. They paint the blood over their doors, and that night, the angel of death comes Parents lose children, wives lose husbands, children lose parents. There's not a single house without somebody dead. No one goes unaffected except the Hebrews because they're safe beneath the blood of that lamb that was sacrificed. We begin to see a picture of God's redemption unfolding. It involves a sacrifice. It involves shedding of blood, the arrival of a perfect lamb, This ritual they're instructed to do and celebrate every year, the Passover, foreshadows Jesus' death on the cross and our own deliverance. In fact, when Jesus, before he died, was eating with his disciples, they were celebrating the Passover. They themselves were looking back and saying, remember how God delivered our ancestors out of Egypt. Remember how he did that. Remember these symbols. And it's so perfect. We had communion this morning. When Jesus eats with his disciples that day, he says, okay, we're doing this to remember how God saved our people. And now I'm telling you, I am that lamb. I am that lamb. I'm here. We're not going to look back at that anymore. You're going to look to me. And as the church, that's what we do. We look back and we say we remember what Christ did. And we look forward to him coming again. It's the picture. He's referring to that picture, that same picture. And John the Baptist, um, we see this a couple times in the New Testament for sure. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming towards him in John 1, 29, he's been baptizing in the Jordan River, and he looks up and he sees Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's a familiar phrase to them, Lamb of God. They're referring to these lambs that were sacrificed. But John is recognizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Paul uses this language as well in 1 Corinthians 5. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If you've ever read that in the New Testament, and you haven't spent some time in the Old Testament, you might think, I don't quite get it. I don't really understand it. That's what they're referring to. It's this event with, in Egypt with the Hebrews being released So in the lower story, and that's what we've been talking about, the story, the lower story, all these little stories that we read, and you can just take them at face value, you don't understand unless you're looking for the upper story of what God is doing. The lower story, the Israelites are making a sacrifice, they're eating, and they're getting ready to escape being slaves. 
But in the upper story, God's providing the ultimate sacrifice for the deliverance of an entire world from slavery to sin and death. Do you see the picture? So God delivers them in a way that only he can. 430 years to the day, it tells us, from the day that Jacob and his descendants came with Joseph to Egypt, God takes them out. Can you imagine packing for that road trip? Oh my goodness. If you have little kids, this is a nightmare to think about. This summer, my, my kids and I, so we, we went to camp four different times at Kettleston, and every time you're packing all the bedding, all the snacks for the cabin, your beach stuff, your rainy day stuff, your closed-toed shoes to climb on Jacob's ladder, it goes on and on and on and on. And in the midst of all their packing, somebody has to remember to pack Joseph's bones. I wondered when I read it, whose job is this going to be, Joseph? Well, we're told Moses actually takes care of that. So it's like packing for a giant road trip with a group, well, let's say the size of Calgary or Vancouver. Let's just all go for a big road trip, you guys. Doesn't that sound like fun, moms? And I couldn't help but also wonder, so in faith, when Moses first came with Aaron and he said, God's taking us out, did they go home that day and start packing? And were they packing the whole time? Or were they packing? Oh, no, Pharaoh said, no, unpack it all. Oh, pack it all again. Pack it all. Or did they just wait till the night before? You know who you are. Some of you just wait till the night before. (laughs) Regardless, they're on the road. And they're going. And they're saved dramatically through the Red Sea, led by a cloud and a pillar of fire, walking through the sea on dry ground as God parts the waters for them. Pharaoh's army chases after them. There's this huge pursuit scene. And then they're destroyed in the waves that crash down behind this long line of travelers in a triumphant deliverance. You can read all the details yourself. And then, like any family road trip, as soon as you get around that first corner, somebody starts to complain, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, are we there yet? And I won't go into that part, because that's going to come later as they wander around. In the story of Moses and the deliverance of the Hebrew nation from slavery, God gives a powerful picture of his ability to rescue and save and his plan to send a savior, Jesus. All these stories that we keep looking back on, keep hinting, you need someone to rescue you. You need someone to save you. But that someone isn't Abraham. That someone isn't Adam. That someone isn't Joseph. That someone isn't Moses. We keep seeing that theme, a rescuer is needed. Who is going to rescue you? The Israelites thought that Pharaoh was a harsh taskmaster, and he was. But they didn't understand that their greatest need for deliverance was not from a slave master, but from slavery to sin. And as we follow their story later, it's going to become really obvious that that is needed. The deliverance from the Egyptian slave master is just a picture of how Christ wants to rescue us. And Ashley read that passage from Luke 4, where Jesus stands up and reads from the prophet Isaiah something that had been written about him many years in advance. 
The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I don't know how the listeners heard that. I don't know if they were thinking about literal poor people and literal prisoners in their cells and literal blind people. But his message was more than that. Proclaiming good news to the poor. Here's the good news. The good news is, I'm it, he says. I'm that lamb. I am the one who came. I've come to set you free. There's deliverance waiting for you today. Deliverance from fear, from doubt, from spiritual blindness, from oppression, from shame. If you've ever been part of one of our set-free retreats, you understand what it feels like to have a new view of what he's delivered you from. Wow. And if you've never been to one of our set-free retreats, I would encourage you, go. November and March are our regular rhythms for having those. Watch for information. You get a new understanding of what it looks like to be set free and delivered through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross his death and his resurrection, and the power that comes to walk in that. The power from the God who delivers. So in a lot of ways, we have the same problem as the Israelites. We're both enslaved. They were enslaved. We're not enslaved to an Egyptian taskmaster or a slave driver. But sin can feel that way. And what does our response need to be? We need to position ourselves under the cross of Christ, just like they positioned themselves under the blood on the doorway. They didn't understand what it was pointing forward to. They just understood how it saved them. Position ourselves under the cross of Christ, trusting in the ability of God to save us and lead us out. Every story is working together to help us see in his big story what his plan was from the beginning. This wasn't, I think I thought as a child that God sort of realized how messed up things got, and so he started to write a plan for how to fix it. But when you see the upper story, you realize, no, he knew from the beginning. There was a plan from the beginning. We see it every single time. He points, there's a Savior coming, a Savior's coming, a Savior's coming. This isn't an afterthought that I thought, oh, you've really got, it, got us into a mess now. I guess I better think up a plan. No, his plan was from the beginning, and we're watching how it unfolds. Have you positioned yourself under the covering of the Lamb given to us by God? There's a couple of things I want us to think about as we wrap up, and I'll invite the worship team can come back um, and join me. Maybe for some of us, it's actually thinking back. When you think about Moses, you think, well, I kind of feel like that. 80 sitting in the wilderness, watching sheep, feeling like I have no purpose. Too old, too unqualified, too weak, too disconnected, whatever. Maybe for you, you say, I've, I understand Christ delivered me from sin and death. I, I understand that and I'm thankful for it. But maybe what you need to do today is to realize that the God, the same God who called Moses in the desert, the same God, the great I am who doesn't change, 
is still at work in you. Philippians 1.6 tells us that we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will actually carry it out to completion until the day of Christ. And maybe that's what you need to hang on to today. He's actually not done. He isn't finished. He's still at work in you. And maybe you've never positioned yourself under the cross of Christ, never understood why it was needed or what it was for. You could do that today, too. You know, the gospel is free, but it's never forced. And he gives us an opportunity to respond, to place ourselves under the covering of his blood as that perfect sacrificial lamb that protects us from spiritual death and destruction. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. Let's offer a prayer of thanksgiving to him. If you say, yes, I get it, I know, I can look back at my walk, I know there's a time when I position myself under the blood of cross the blood of the cross, let's just praise him for that. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the deliverance that you've provided for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And today we want to say yes, yes to the great I am. We want you to display your power in our lives, in our minds. We want to walk in the deliverance that you bring through your son, Jesus. We praise you for that. If you've never said yes to the gift that God is offering you, you can do that today, and it can start with such a simple step. Yes is a very small word. He'll work out the details after. You can pray. There's no magic words. You can pray something like this. Father, you are the God who never changes. Thank you that you love me, and you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross, to deliver me. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, my deliverer. Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise you, Lord. We give you praise for what you've done. We thank you that you haven't left us hanging, wondering, where is the Savior? Will the Savior come? Who will rescue us? Who will save us? Thank you that you've answered it. And that just as you displayed your power for the Hebrews in the time of Moses, you're ready to display your power in our own lives and minds today, the God that never changes. We praise you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to join the worship band as they play, and there'll be a chance if you'd like somebody to pray with you afterwards um, for that to happen.